Like who? The girl you're staring at. Oh, uh, yeah. Why don't you ask her out? Out? You don't want a date? To eat food? Food? Yes, real food, not candy. And if she says yes, you're in. It's like a secret code girls have. Look who it is. Hi, Jovi. Michael. I'm his brother. Hi. So what are you doing here? Did... I really wanted to see you, and, and I think you're beautiful, and I, um, I feel really warm when I am around you, and um, my tongue swells up. So, do you want to go eat food? Do I, do I want to eat food? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the code. Food. Well, I just had my lunch break. Oh, okay. I understand. But I'm free on Thursday. Thursday! Thursday! Come on, that'd oh. be great. All right. Buddy, uh, not now. Uh, can you please go back to the uh, to the pit? I'll come visit you in a little while, okay? I didn't know you had elves working here. I mean, what would the Christmas season be without Elf, right? I mean, for real, there, there had to be some reason that I had to play a scene from Elf. And, and in fact, uh, beyond just the fact of trying to figure out a way to get Elf into Christmas, um, there, there is another significant reality that we discover in this particular little moment in the life of Elf. The premise of this movie is watching a, an adult of sorts, if you will, uh, who's been isolated from the world in which we live, uh, enter into this world and find wonder in every little ordinary thing that we have completely forgotten to find wonder in, right? And so that's kind of the journey of the movie. And the moment that you just watched there is the moment for me where he discovers something we've all felt at some point that he just can't even begin to express and explain, and that is the, the wonder of falling in love and, and being in love. When we are in love as human beings, it is something else. Man, I mean, some would say it's the strongest drug in the world, right? I mean, you've heard love is the strongest drug in the world, and I, I kind of buy into that idea. I mean, have you ever felt in love? I mean, it is an all-consuming, unbelievable experience and feeling that comes over us that then expands from that moment into something much larger as it progresses, if it progresses. So this, this idea of being in love, of loving someone or something, is a big deal in the human experience. I went into the dictionary this week to look up the definition of love. You know, I looked up the definition of hope and joy and peace, and I was very pleasantly surprised by the insightful wonder of the dictionary as it was describing for us these things. And I go to the word love in the dictionary. It was so pathetic, I'm not even gonna bother to read it to you. Like, I was like, I wanted to call the dictionary and go, did the people who wrote this, have they ever fallen in love? Because that's the best you can come up with. There was some deal about like, you know, warmth toward another person. I'm like, no, no, no. Uh, what you need to write in there is, has your tongue ever swelled up 
Have you ever sweat profusely in the presence of another human being? Have you ever felt like singing and speechless at exactly the same time? Have you ever picked up a telephone 19 times and hung up 19 times? See, they need to start listing out the experiences that we have as human beings when we feel something deeply. And then when they're done listing all of those in the dictionary, they should move beyond those and then start listing some of the other things we experience. The protective nature of love, the, the, the desire to, to do or to serve or to please. The, I mean, as love expands out of that initial experience into a deepening experience, it continues to get larger. See, the thing about love is when you try to put it in the dictionary and go, what, what, is, what is love? I mean, really, you start trying and you realize, man, it is so multifaceted. There's so many pieces to this puzzle. There's so many different kinds, forms, different experiences of love in different relationships. It's just unbelievable. But what I do know is this, that when we are in love, when we are in love, it changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, it changes us. I mean, it, it, I, I, I've actually begun to build an army of people around my teenage, my young teenagers now because, because of one thing. At some point, they are going to fall in love, right? Maybe not the long, big love that's going to be alive, but they're going to fall in love with someone and they're going to listen to no one. It's, it's going to happen because once we're in love, man, it is lock and load. It is everything else is out and the only thing that's in is the thing we're in love with. That's it. Man. That person, they are the world. They are the world and we will do anything for love, won't we? I mean, we will do anything anything for love. That's us. That's us human beings. I mean, I, I know this, this plays out, right? I mean, when I first met my wife, we've been married 17 years now, together 19 uh, from the time that I met her. And um, uh, so for 19 years, I've, I've been journeying with this woman. And 19 years ago, I can still tell you the room that I met her and that I saw her in the first time. I remember standing in that room and when I saw her, man, it wasn't just a, just wasn't just a beauty thing, although she is beautiful. It wasn't just that. I, I saw it. It was like everything was right about that human being. You know, have you ever had that feeling like there is nothing wrong with that human being? Everything is beautiful. It's like something inside is like beaming out. I just remember having the thought, like, should I tell her now that we're going to spend the rest of our lives together and she's going to be with me and it's going to be awesome. We're going to have eight kids and four of them are going to be adopted. Should I go over that now with her or should I give her a little bit of space and let her kind of discover that as a surprise, you know? So I kind of went with a surprise route. It worked out much better, I think. But, but at the end of the day, I, I remember, I mean, you, you, you remember that feeling, that initial spark and then you suddenly realize, like, I think I will do anything for this person. And as we journeyed into the courting relationship and then into the engagement and those first two years of relationship, I remember the things I did, man. I mean, I still look back at them now. I can't explain them. I, I can't. I, I lived in Washington, D.C. area, lived outside of D.C., and uh, Brooke lived inside D.C., and she lived and worked sort of in, inside the city, and I lived and went to school outside the city. Now, Washington, D.C., is a very, very simple equation that makes Washington, D.C. work, okay? And never, ever try to go in or out of the city. Either stay in or stay out, because the traffic there is so insane on every road that it does not matter what secrets you know. Everybody else knows those secrets, too. So uh, every road you take is a disaster. So unless you absolutely have to go in and out of that city, just don't. Live in it, live out of it, don't go in and out. And I went to school in Maryland on the north side of the city. I lived on the east side of the city. I 
there's a beltway that you can take that's trafficy but relatively decent, okay? But don't try to come in and out. That's crazy. My wife worked inside the city and there was this store called Dean and DeLuca and she loved these gumdrops from Dean and DeLuca. They're really good gumdrops, I gotta say. And she loved them and, and my wife was healthy even back then and so you know, they were a special little treat for her and she'd pack her little lunch and go off to work and work at her office. And what I would do is if my class ended early at school, I would drive through the city like the hour and 30 minutes to her office. It's a 30-minute drive to my house from my school, okay? I would drive the hour and 30 minutes through horrid traffic, people trying to kill me, me trying to kill them, get to her, Dean and DeLuca, uh, find a parking space, buy the five gumdrops in the sequence she liked with the color she liked, deliver them to her office, to the receptionist, and say, when Brooke comes out for lunch break, would you hand these to her and, and just say someone dropped them off? And then I would get in my car and drive the hour and a half out of D.C. back to my house, right? I mean, four hours wasted. And you go, oh, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. No, it's stupid. It's completely <laughs> stupid. Who does that, Right? Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. A human being in love does that. They do that kind of insanity. I remember one, uh, on several occasions, actually, it would snow in D.C. And it doesn't snow often there. So when the first flake hits the ground, everyone panics. And they're like accidents before there's snow on the ground. Like people just start driving as though they're sliding. They're like, oh, crash into someone. It's what you do, right? And so uh, on a snow day, on a snow, never, ever, ever drive uh, into D.C. on a snow day. And I would get up before the sun came up. Now, let me just be clear. I hate mornings, okay, unless I'm sleeping. Then I love them. But if I'm awake, I hate them. I hate mornings. I'm not a morning person. I've never been a morning person. I have not slept in in years because I have eight kids, and I'm bitter about it. I mean, I want to tell you, I am bitter about that. I said to Brooke, when, when our last kid graduates from, from high school and, and, and we can kind of shove them somewhere else or tell them to have their own room in the house uh, and not bother us, I'm doing two things. I'm buying movie passes so I can go see a movie in the theater every day. I'm going to go watch a movie every day in the theater because I love movies and I don't get to see them. And then I'm going to sleep until 11 o'clock for 10 years. Uh, no exceptions. <laughs> Just to catch up on what's ro been robbed from me uh, uh, in these past 10. So I, I hate mornings. And when I was in college, I hated them even more. But I would get up before the sun came up. I would get in my car. I hate the cold. Oh yeah, that's true as well. I would drive through the snow into D.C. to her apartment where she was fast asleep, warm in her bed. I would scrape off the snow from her car and her windows so that the six-minute drive to her workplace, she wouldn't have to scrape the ice off her window. Then I would drive back to my house, get ready for school and go to school. That distance, and she wouldn't know it until she'd come out to the car. Who does that? I'll tell you who. A human being in love. That's what we do. We start acting crazy. And it's not just for people. We don't just do that for people. We do that when we fall in love with things as well. Christmas time, right? I mean, I have a bunch of kids, right? And so I get to watch this in a, in, in, in a, a wonderful uh, display of manipulation. So what my kids do is, uh, throughout the year, there are things they fall in love with. Things they know that this is the ultimate. I mean, the ultimate toy, the ultimate Lego set, the ultimate uh, electronic, the ultimate deal. And there will never, ever be another thing like this one. This is the one. If there's ever been anything I've ever wanted in my entire life, this is that thing. And they will start the process. They will send notes to the grandparents, uh, bypass passing the parents. They will write letters to the guy in the big red suit kind of going, look, if, if they can't pull it off, you might be able to pull it off. I mean, whatever it takes, they'll do it because they want that thing under that tree. And then when they open it, have you seen this, man? If they open that gift and it's the one that they've been manipulating you to get, that one, 
I mean, it is like watching a human being explode. It is, it's wonderful to watch. It's like, it's like, all the bouncing things breaking. And if it's not that gift, you know, they tear it up and it's not the one, right? You see the process in their mind if they're old enough. Like, what is the consequence of grumbling and complaining? Is it worth it? Should I pretend at this moment? I mean, you see it happening behind the eyes. It's like the, it's, it's nice. You know, you've seen that. It's the difference between feeling that thing we call love that we can't quite put our finger on, but we know when it's there, it comes like a wave over us, and then it changes everything. It changes the way we behave. It changes the way we act. It changes the things we do. It just does. Now, now don't get me wrong. I, I certainly am a believer in the fact that you can choose to love someone or choose to love something without fe- all those feelings, and I'm a believer that you can choose to show love, no doubt about it, and that's powerful. But being in love, feeling love for something, that comes. Feeling love for someone, that comes. And, and, and it comes, and then strangely enough in our human experience, it tends to fade as well. Have you noticed that? I mean, the, the initial uh, adults who has, you know, iPhone 5S owners. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm one of them. I mean, really? Really? Is the iPhone 5S that much cooler than the iPhone 4S? Oh, yes it is. I agree wholeheartedly. I just want to say that. But I'm wrong. I'm completely wrong. It's just not, right? I mean, it's just more expensive and a little thinner, and it has a processor that's faster when the first process was too fast anyways, right? But that's us. What we have now, as soon as it collects a little dust, as soon as it goes, it, it kind of fades into distance. My kids, they open the gift, click, clock, clock start, 24 hours, 48 hours, shelf ornament. I paid that for a shelf ornament? Are you kidding me? And they're on to the next thing. That's what happens in our relationships. It doesn't gather dust, it gathers baggage. That's what we gather. We discover that perfect human being we saw, that oh, tongue swell, sweaty, I can't speak. That human being, oh, they're not perfect. Ha, who knew? They have baggage and they bring it to me and they throw it my way. And I go, what? You were supposed to be perfect. I don't know, I don't feel so wonderful anymore about you. And so the love begins to fade. And so then we get into the mode, you know, I mean, I'm choosing to love her. I'm choosing to love him. Big man. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad you are. But that, that feeling fades. Some would say the feeling fades because us human beings, for us it's about the chase, not about actually loving anything, but about the chase. You know, When you can't have something, then you want it, and then as soon as you have it and it's yours, then you don't want it anymore. So some would argue, both in relationships and in things, that it is the idea of getting what we cannot have that is this feeling of love. It's the adrenaline that forces us to do that, but once we have it, then it's gone. But I gotta tell you, I, I wholeheartedly disagree with that assessment, I really do. That has not been my personal experience. I have actually experienced something very, very different that uh, the idea of loving someone or loving something, in particular in this case loving someone, that in fact over a period of time the more certain you become that you have this person no matter what, uh, oftentimes within that journey it is not love fading as much as love building. And I'm not just talking about the deepening kind of love. Look, I love that kind of love. Don't get me wrong. I'm not minimizing it. But you know, when, when a couple comes in like, you know, I, I love's much deeper now than it was 20 years ago, I go, you guys, you guys need some spark, don't you? Because what that really means is, I, mean, I, I, I'm, I love them. I mean, love, but, oh, what I felt the first day I saw them? No, 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 that's not there. And was that love? Well, that's part of it, isn't it? That, that deep sense of something inside of you just going, oh, wow. My wife, I journeyed with her 17 years in marriage now, 
And uh, the entire 17 years, I mean, with all our ups and downs, our baggage, our craziness, uh, you know, our conflict that we have to resolve every, like, other hour, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, that, that all progresses, and, and I've certainly grown to love my wife more and more over 17 years, um, but I got to tell you, in, in the last 18 months, uh, since we stepped into the story we're in, where we've uh, brought a world into our home, uh, into our world, two families colliding and having to figure out how to make them one family, uh, I have watched the weight and the reality of that on our entire family unit, not just, uh, not just my biological family, but my adopted family. That, that whole unit feels the weight of the new life that we're living. And of all the people that feels that weight most, I would say my wife carries the majority of that weight because her personality is a personality that likes order and silence and structure and things to flow in a sequence of things. I, I hate that world. I like it. Just, just let it just all go, man. But she loves that. And so uh, you bring eight children into any environment and it's over. I mean, none of that exists, right? And so I get to leave every morning and off to work having lunches and breakfasts with all of you. And Brooke stays home in the chaos and noise and insanity and the complaining and whining and crying. And then I get home and it's like, oh my gosh, this, the world's falling apart. So Here's my wife, she steps into that, and I've said to God for a while, man, you're gonna have to increase our capacity, and we can't empty the cup fast enough, you know what I'm saying? Goes, Your cup's too full, empty. I'm like, have you seen our life? I mean, we drain with entire annual getaways for 12 months, and we get back in in two days, the cup's full. So I mean, a, a two-day getaway, nothing, right? You can't empty fast enough, they're filling it. And I've watched God increase my wife's capacity to do life in extraordinary ways. So over the last six months, I have watched something unbelievable happen in my home. My wife has not only begun to live life in our home under a life that she wouldn't necessarily choose unless God asked her to do it, right? She has learned to step into that life and she is pushing into that life further than she needs to. Let me explain. You see, I tell my wife all the time, Look, there's enough in our house that sucks the life out of us every minute that you need to preserve as much energy as you have, right? Just do the minimum, right? I mean, uh, we, throw the we on for four hours. I mean, that'll keep them busy. And let's do pizza, because that'll keep them happy. I mean, why eat healthy and educate them? I mean, those are such unnecessary realities. They just continue to draw energy out and create conflict, and it's so unnecessary. I mean, do that like once a week, but the rest of the time, just stick them in front of the box. That'll keep them busy. And, and my, my wife goes, no, no, we, we are parenting our children to become adults that are actually able to function in society in a manner worthy of the gospel. So we're going to fight these battles. So she's already doing that. And then she does this. Like my wife, she creates all these events for our family. You know, we're going to all make an ornament together. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be horrible. It's going to go so badly. I mean, I can already tell you who's going to complain and throw stuff and whine. And I hate this activity and all this heart and soul. My wife's poured into it is going to go and any oh let's go let's go to sea world let's let, oh i found this boat parade with lights up in leesburg we're gonna go watch it i'm like you, you want to take eight kids and sit outside and watch boats come by with lights it'd be cool if we went on a date night but they're just gonna complain Everything we do with our eight children currently, somewhere it goes disastrously wrong. And I go home driving, like hyperventilating, just going, why do we do this stuff? Lock them in their room for a year, then they'll understand, right? <laughs> and now it's Christmas. 
My wife, 13 hours the last two days, she's been baking cookies in the kitchen and fudged things, and they look like snowmen with little hats, and she incorporated all four of the girls into the mix, although they're disaster and doing this. And I look at my wife, I'm like, what are you doing? And my wife says, look, one day when our kids get older, they're going to look back and they're going to remember our family as a place that did things together. See, they won't remember the disasters we're remembering, because they actually are having fun. We're the ones dying. They'll remember the wonder of a family that did things together, that created together, that, that created memories. And I look at my wife every day and I'm like, I mean, this woman gets up and, and everything's already taken from her, but she gives more. She goes the extra mile and then she, she's done with the extra mile. She goes another mile and then I'm like, okay, you can't do anymore. No, 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 there's one more mile to go. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Not one more mile. And then exhausted, go to bed. And I'm like, Unbelievable. And as I've been watching Brooke, something amazing has happened. Over the last, especially six months, I'm watching this woman, and I, I, I'm in awe of her. I, I really am. I'm like, I watch her, I'm like, who does this? Who spends themselves like this under the weight that she's already under? And that awe has turned into a deep respect. And, and, and then that respect kind of turned into this wonder that I have of this woman. And so here's what's happened. I, I, I figured this out. The more wonder I found in Brooke, the more I saw her and went, oh my gosh, she's amazing. The more this weird feeling started stirring up inside of me. I remember it. I had it the first couple of months with Brooke. You know, she'd walk in the room and you'd go, oh, Brooke's here. And I'm back there now. Like she walks into a room and I'm like, oh, Brooke, Brooke's here. Excuse me, I'm sweating. <laughs> no, for, for real. This is no joke. Like I am in love with my wife. Like I, like I don't remember being since the beginning days because she's so wonderful to me, so wonderful. I, just can't, I, I, I see her in our house and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in the house with that woman. It's unbelievable. How, how privileged am I? See, something's been born in me again. This amazing love that's birthing out and then it starts shaping behavior. You know, I've, I have thoughts like, maybe I could fly to DC to Dean and DeLuca and just buy those little gumdrops and fly them back for a lunch break for Brooke. How fun would that be? Now before all you guys go, oh, are you kidding me? I mean, are you kidding me? Stop already. And you women are going, uh, <coughs> I, I don't clean the garage. I don't do the dishes. My wife asked me some basic stuff. I forget. I'm unreliable. I'm as horrible as any other guy. It's the ideas I have that are cool. Okay, so, so don't get all like, oh my gosh, Renault's amazing. No, he's not. Ask Brooke. The garage is a mess. She just wants that clean. Forget Dean and DeLuca. I can't even pull that off. So, so don't get too like, caught up. Here's what I'm saying, that when we begin to fall in love, we fall in love because we find someone or something wonderful. When we find something to be wondrous or to be wonderful or to be awe-inspiring, then what is birthed in us is a feeling, an experience, an emotion of love. And that's how God designed us. We were supposed to exist that way where things that are worthy of awe inspire in us feelings of love and then cause us to behave toward that thing or person in a way that says, I will do anything. The reason God designed us this way is because he had created us originally to know the awe of knowing him and then be drawn into that and love him and because we love him we do for him not as a work or a burden but as a joy when I drove out of DC in the middle of the dark on the early morning I never drove out of there going I can't believe she made me do this so ridiculous I was like oh, oh it was so, I love doing this and we are you like what when we're in love man 
the, the things that we get to do for the person we love are extraordinary. Jesus understood this deeply when he was unpacking for us the relationship that we have with him. He understood that as a human being created to love after being loved or to created to love so that we can uh, experience the joy of loving because he knew that, he knew that in a profound way our relationship with him would be driven and dictated by our love for him, not by our behavior toward him, not by the consequences he would affect if we didn't, but actually by our love for him. We intrinsically understand this. I can make my children do things for a while, but in the end if they do not love love me, then they will just stop doing them the second the consequences are removed. And Jesus knew this. So he spoke often uh, to us and to his disciples for us about the love relationship that is so critical in the relationship we have with Jesus. And there was an event where he was speaking with the disciples and he described this in a beautiful way in John chapter 14. So John chapter 14, what he's doing is he's basically telling the guys, look, I've got to leave planet Earth. It's going to go badly for a while. You're going to think it's going to be crazy. And then I'm going to leave. Uh, and then when I leave, you're going to be a little discouraged because you're going to go, well, hold on a second. Our leader is gone. And so now we are going to drop the ball and fail. And you're going to go back to your old life. But don't worry. That's not going to happen. That's that famous passage where he says, you know, I'm going to depart, but don't worry. I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. There are many rooms in my father's house and I'm going to come back and get you. That's John chapter 14. And in the context of that, after he's told them he's leaving and they're a little nervous, he says, but don't worry, when I leave, you're going to be fine because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who's going to come empower you to live a life that is going to be a life that's going to ultimately be the story I'm writing, be faithful to me. So don't panic and go, what if, what if I mess it up? What if I don't do what you want? I don't understand. No, you will. And then he tells us why we will. It's actually an extraordinary passage. Let me read to you this. Um, he's, he's speaking in John, and he answers um, actually a, a question Judas asks about um, why uh, he's, he's not manifesting himself in a different way. And, and look what he says. Jesus answered him. He's answering Judas. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, if you just read that statement, I know what it sounds like at first, doesn't it? It sounds like the parental guilt trip, doesn't it? You know what? I can't believe you're behaving this way. I can't believe you're not listening to me. If you loved me, then you would obey me. I do this in my home too. You know, if you kids loved mom and dad and cared anything about us, then you wouldn't treat us this way. We all do it. Every parent does it. And that's what it sounds like. Jesus saying, you know, if, if you love me, then you will keep my word. And then the Father will come and be with you, right? And if you don't love me, well, then guess what? The Father ain't coming. That's right. But that's not what he says. Look. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. He, says, he didn't say will not keep my word. Did you hear that? Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. See, what he's saying here, remember the context here is he's, he's, he's building confidence for the disciples. That's the context here. He's telling them, when I leave, don't worry. The Holy Spirit's coming for you. You're going to be fine. And he goes, look, here's how it plays. Whoever loves me will keep my word, and the Father will be with them. And whoever doesn't love me, they, they won't keep my word. So don't worry, because what? You know me, and you love me. See, Jesus even understood that when we love him, then our, our, the byproduct of that is that our behavior is bent on keeping his word. 
So yes, it, it comes like a good marriage, you know? There are times where I choose to love my wife because I don't really love her, right? Feeling love. And there are times where I'm like, she walks in the room and I get all sweaty and I just want to do anything for her. But throughout both those seasons, I love her. But the one that I enjoy, the one that's natural, the one that comes, the one that I don't think about is the one where she is awesome to me and I, and I just want to do whatever I can for her. And when Jesus is awesome to us and we love him, we don't choose to do things for him, we do them because we're in love. No wonder the authors of scripture wrote things like this, author of Hebrews, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow tired and lose heart. See, the author writes stuff like that to us. He goes, listen, let me tell you how your life works. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. You focus on him. You stare into him. You watch him. You pay attention to him because remember, he started your story. He finishes your story. He gave himself for your story. He is the one that went before you. He is the one behind you. And when you rem remember all of that and remember what he's done and remember what he endured, well, guess what will happen in you? You won't grow tired and weary because you'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm in love. The author of uh, Romans, Paul, wrote to the church in Rome and he's about to tell them to give themselves completely to God as a living sacrifice. Literally like, take your life as a living sacrifice, give it to God. So he goes, you know, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God for this is your spiritual act of worship. But right before he says that, you know what the line is? Therefore, dear brothers, in view of God's mercy, Present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You see, it's always the starting point that says, if you are doing this uh, because it's the right thing to do, because, because you're just trying to stay faithful, because you're just trying to plug through, there's honor in that. Don't get me wrong, you're choosing to do that, but it's not sustainable because us human beings don't function that way. When we're in love, man, that's when we step into the natural process of just giving ourselves away for the sake of the person we're in love with. In, in the book of Revelation, um, some letters are written to some churches, and it's kind of a, 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 a letter that kind of goes, you, you're doing some things okay, good job, and, and here's some things you're not doing okay, and we really need to get a handle on those. It's the parental you know, guidance for the church from Jesus himself. It's when I sit with my kids and you wanna sandwich the bad news between the good news, you're like, okay, you know, I love you, and I, I believe in your future, and you're awesome, and there is that one thing you do really well, but for now we're gonna talk about these 19 habits that we really gotta deal with. And then right afterwards, but I still love you. You know, you know that deal. And every church, you read every church's story, and the list of things they're not doing well, like I go, yeah, I'd be ticked too. Like I just read them and I'm like, I get why God's disciplining this church. I get why God is a little serious about this. If they keep doing this, it's gonna be really, really bad for them. So he's trying to protect them from their own destruction. Except for one church, I gotta tell you. One church, I read it, the entire thing, including the reprimand, and I'm like, I just don't get it, why it's such a big deal, until I started discovering the power of what it means to love someone, right? Listen to this. Uh, Revelation chapter two, verse two, church in Ephesus. I mean, this resume, sign me up. I want this resume. Ready? Listen to this. This is what he says to the church. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing 
up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Are you kidding me? That is rock solid. Is there anything you find that this church is not doing? I mean, they're, they're discerning, they're enduring, they're patiently bearing the weight of suffering for the sake of Christ and His name and the glory of God. They are moving forward. They're not complaining. They're not whining because he says you haven't grown weary. You're, you're staying the course. You're faithful. I mean, every great word you can pull out of the bank, it's there. These guys are awesome. And then he says this. I mean, th this. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Uh, okay, and? No, no, that's it. That's what I have against you. And I want to, I, I literally, first time I ever read that, I, I thought, I, I want to I ask God a question. Okay, hold, hold on, I'm confused. So they, don't, they don't have a, a wonderful first love feeling for you. I get that. That thing I, you know, I had with Brooke the first few weeks and months that I saw her every day. But, but in the end, are they not loving faithfully despite that? Are they not pouring themselves out for you? Are they not demonstrating actually the greater love, right? Where you don't feel anything. But you are pushing on, baby. And then, and then I, you know, this is what he says. Listen to this. Remember, this is right after that. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. You, you, you hear the talk? I mean, you, you want a list of horrible sins there. Remember where you've fallen from and repent, he says, and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'm like, wow. But you see, I get it now. Because in the end, when we are not in love with someone. There are seasons where that's okay, where we continue to choose to love. But if that doesn't change over time, if we do not see that person as wonderful once again at some point, see the wonder in them, see the beauty, and start feeling that awe and respect that grows, that births love and causes us to behave differently, then our works become a self-righteousness or they become a legalistic process by which we are fulfilling the necessary duties in order for others or God or ourselves to feel like we're doing what's right. And that is not sustainable. And God says, if, if you do not reconnect to your love for me, this will not last and the lampstand will be removed. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Jesus, uh, in the book of Luke, uh, Luke is recording the life of Christ, and right before we step into the chapter where Judas Iscariot uh, um, comes in and, and, and uh, betrays him, and the arrest happens and all that, the, literally the last teaching we hear in the book of Luke before the Last Supper and the arrest is in the temple. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and he's talking about the end times in this particular case, when the story of planet Earth will come to an end. And, and, and so in some ways, the context here is, of course, the whole story, when it will all come to an end. But the context Context is equally for you and I uh, when our story comes to an end, right? Because when you die, when you leave planet Earth, when I die, then whether the story of planet Earth is over or not, my story's done on this planet. And I'm going to move on to the next story. So this is really talking about as you approach the end of the story, here's some things I want you to know. So the last words of Jesus before the arrest, okay? Luke chapter 21, verse 34. But watch yourself... Lest, you, uh, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this world, and that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times. 
So Jesus is sitting around with the guys and, and with a group of people and saying, look, I'm, I'm about to go through something crazy here, but here's the deal. Let me give you some last words. Guard your hearts, man. Watch your hearts that they do not have dissipation take place through the escapes and the cares of this world. Because if you do, you will end up being caught by surprise at the end of the story. What is dissipation? Well, in, in essence, it's a slow leaking is what it is. Another word for it is compromise. You can actually translate that compromise as well. It's the little things that we allow or that we do or that we experience that slowly drains without notice. It's the little oil leak that doesn't seem like a big deal, but if it drips long enough, you're out of oil, the engine explodes, right? And that's what dissipation is. And Jesus says, let me tell you, let me warn you that in the life you live, you travel through the cares of this world and as they weigh down on you and they captivate your heart, the wonder and the love that you have for me will slowly leak. It just will. And as it leaks, guard your hearts against that leakage because as it dissipates, as compromise comes, before you know it, you'll be escaping into the things of the world, drunkenness, etc., and you will find yourself burdened by the cares of this world and captivated by them. So Jesus says, don't let that happen because then you're going to be caught unaware when you come to the end of your story and go, oh man, you're kidding me. How did I miss this? And so Jesus says, don't, don't do that. And, and let's be honest. In a room like this, there's not a human being in this room that doesn't live every day with the cares of this life, right? I mean, you guys too. I mean, maybe not exactly my context, but you know, uh, you get woken up by a kid shouting at you, I'm hungry. And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm trying to sleep, go away. And then you get out of bed and you feed them and you get them out to school and lunchbox is packed and you're exhausted and it's like 7.20 in the morning and you go get dressed and then you begin the day, right? Oh my gosh, I got that meeting at three. I'm so dreading that meeting and my boss is this and I gotta provide for my family and, 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 and my wife is already going, are you gonna be home in time tonight because you've worked late the last few nights and you go, well, if I don't work late, they're gonna fire me and then I don't have anything to provide and well, you need more time with the kids. Well, I'm trying and then you drive to work and like, uh, the boss is going, you're spending an awful amount of time at the family, and you've got to be here more. And you're like, but they need it. Well, I'm going to fire you. And you're like, oh, I can't do that. And then you're going home, and it's date night, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm exhausted. I love my wife, but I don't know what to say. Everything's been said. And we drive out, and then date night, it's like, you're not with the kids enough. And you're like, oh, my gosh. And then you're driving home from date night and go, maybe we should bring the kids next time. And, and then you're home, and, and then, then you wake up the next morning, and you go, oh, my God, there, there's stress, and there's other things happening. And then, then there's all these people around you like oh I thought you'd make more of your life by now and you're like come on I'm trying here look we all live this life the pressures the, the weight the journey of the of the complications of trying to balance everything in the fast-paced world we live and we keep thinking to ourselves I wish I could just go to some island somewhere and buy a cow and milk it and eat eggs the pure life and then you go well maybe we should do that and then you go and do that and the cow dies and it doesn't rain you don't have food and suddenly you're burdened by the fact that you can't eat and you have to give your kids away <laughs> see the, the fact of the matter is that it doesn't really matter the context every one of us lives under the cares of this world and they dissipate out of us they drain out of us the wonder that we discovered in Christ and then into that space steps Christmas Every year, faithfully, steps in and it goes, hey, hey, tough year, long year, lots of cares, lots of burdens. I hear you, man. It's tough. Planet Earth mission, awesome. 
Way to go, double fist pump. But it's time to stop for a second and time to, to, to recalibrate. Because, because in, the, in the weight of the cares and the dissipation of that love for Jesus, we need to come back to that for a minute. We, we need to stare back into what makes this so wonderful, so awesome, so awe-inspiring. We need to take some time to do that again. So, so, so chill. See, in the secular world, Christmas comes to try and inspire a little bit of good in us, you know? Come on, it's, it's good cheer time. It's just a week. After that, you can be mean again. But just, just for this week, be nice. And it's in the season where the worst of humanity comes out. I was at SeaWorld on Friday night. Oh, my gosh. Don't ever do that again. Um, and so uh, we, we took the eight kids. We went, and there's a show that they're doing at SeaWorld now where, where they do the Christmas story. And, and we thought, like, you know, we'd show up, like, three minutes beforehand because nobody's going to go and want to watch the Christmas story, actual Christmas story. But it was jammed, right? I mean, 30 minutes ahead of time we get there. We hardly find a seat. We get in there. And then the Christmas story plays out on the stage. And, you know, for the most part, it wasn't theologically horrible. It was quite well done oh, with a little sheep talking and a bird talking and, and that stuff. And it was cute, and everybody was excited. And as they told the Christmas story, and Jesus and the birth and redemption and it was it was awesome and I'm like wow and then they tied that Christmas story as they ought to the idea that as we watch this story it should inspire in us this deep sense of wanting to be good toward each other right I mean they're saying this from the stage and everyone's like yeah it's so beautiful it's so. and then the show was over and the 10,000 people in that room had 26 minutes to get to Shamu jumping out of the deal and they all wanted to go over there because just like my wife they'd sequenced out the order and they realized to get out of here, walk over, they're not going to make it. You should have watched the exit from that place, man. I mean, goodwill towards zero people. <laughs> it was, there was zero. I was like, this is like a mob. Someone's going to die. After like, oh, good to other human beings, unless Shamu's waiting. And that's the Christmas story for the secular world. Momentary little bursts of try to be good. But to us who know Jesus, it's a completely different ballgame. See, to us, it comes to us. And it doesn't say, try to be good, smile a little, give something away. No, it goes, whoa, cares of the world burdened you? Well, it's time to refocus. It's time to stare back into the wonder. See, when we think of the wonder of God, the redemptive story, his gift to us to save us from all of eternal separation from him, right? When we think about that, we typically go to the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? Because that's the big one, isn't it? I mean, that's why he's on a cross and he's dying and, and it's, it's, it's horrible and, and he gives himself up and, and then he, he rises from the dead and it's celebration, it's unbelievable. And we focus on that as the primary and focal point of the wonder of God's redemptive work. But that's only only because we don't understand fully what occurred at the conception and birth of Jesus. When we actually understand that, then that becomes equally as wondrous to the redemptive story as the death and resurrection did. They become one story, all of them equally awe-inspiring. You see, when, when you start understanding who Christ is and what it means that he became human, everything begins to change. What happens when divinity, creator and sustainer, the, the, the divine that is all expensive, there is no end to his expensiveness. There is no boundary. There is no border. There is no restriction. There is nothing that dictates to him anything, anything. He is all things. He is all things. What happens when that creator and sustainer crawls into a woman's womb for nine months 
and then lives in a human body for 33 years. What happens? Paul actually describes it pretty well in terms of that reality in the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians to the church in Philippi. He's talking about our attitudes as human beings toward each other now that we know Christ and and how we should really serve each other and not look to our own needs but the needs of others even when they're not meeting our needs as they ought. And he says, I'm telling you all this um, to have the same mind among yourselves as Christ had, right? And he says these words. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, in other words, though he was divinity, he was God in the form of God, fully expansive, fully unbordered, unboundaried, uneverything, unrestricted, uncounseled, everything, though he was in the form God, fully. Listen to this. Listen to this. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now you go, hold on. He was God, but he didn't find it equal to be with God. What's that about? We'll explain later, but here's the bottom line. God exists in community, unlike us. We exist in isolation. We experience community with one another. God actually exists in community because it is only in community that he can be fully God, fully everything. And so God exists with himself in community. It's unbelievably cool when you unpack it. It's not for today. But I will tell you this. So in community with himself, he does not consider equality as something to be grasped, but it says this, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There's another translation in the NIV and it says this, he became nothing. That is the best description I have ever heard about what happened at the conception and birth of Jesus. See, when we try to figure out God, who is all things, crawls into a human body, we go, man, he's becoming less than he was. He's he's becoming smaller, more restricted. No, no, no. The only way we can describe that in our human language is this. He went from being everything and he became nothing. See, that's what we are when compared to the divine. We are nothing. In fact, the entire nations of all the world are nothing. They are dust on the scales. So imagine a single human being. That's why being loved by the divine is so extraordinary, because we are nothing, and yet we are everything because he loves us. And so Jesus became nothing. He emptied himself completely. And if you could, in essence, empty yourself completely of everything, then you would be what? Nothing. And when he became nothing, that should have been enough. We should have gone, we should stop there and just go, that's enough to celebrate Christmas right there. That's enough to celebrate the rest of my life and be in awe that God became man to make himself known to me and to come and rescue me. But wait, Paul is not done. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men and being found in human form. So here's what Paul says. And being nothing, being emptied, being found in human form. So he's already given everything. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. What? Did you get this? Is it not humiliating enough that the divine becomes human? Yes, it's humiliating enough. But then he bothers to say, here's the conception and birth for you. After becoming human, ew, he humbles himself. It doesn't make any sense. You're like, no, no, he's already humble. No, 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 he did it more 
How did he humble himself? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Man, the creator and sustainer we serve became nothing for us. And then as nothing, he humbled himself unto death and crucifixion so he could rescue us. And that reality of the divine becoming humanity, you know where that's found? In the Christmas story. It is. The Christmas story comes to us every year. The little children's books with the shepherds and the little star and the sheep that you read. Oh, isn't that so cute? Right inside that story, right underneath it, is all the wonder of Christ becoming human for us, becoming nothing for us. And when we read that story and we see what is missed in the stars and the shepherds and the wise men but is so abundantly clear there, it ought to cause us to go, wow, look what he's done. See, like I look at my wife and I go, look what she's doing, man. I said to my wife two weeks ago, I, I don't have a lot of heroes in life. I have some sub-heroes, but I really have only had one true hero in my life, and that's been my dad. He's my hero. I want to be just like my dad when I grow up. I, I, I love my dad. And I said to Brooke two weeks ago, you have done the impossible, man. You have moved from being my wife to being my hero. Like, you are my hero. I want to be just like you when I grow up. I want to be like you. That's it. She, she's my hero. Because I watch why, because I watch what she does, I watch who she is, and I am in awe of the wonder of what I see. And this is what the story of Christmas does for us. See, what Brooke has done is nothing in comparison to what Christ has done for me, nothing. So if that little bit of serving can inspire awe in me, how much more will not the story of Christ becoming nothing for me to humble himself to death, how much more will that not inspire awe in me? And then I will find myself, as I focus and fix on Jesus and his love for me, I will find myself falling in love again. Falling in love. That's what the Advent season is all about, isn't it? The anticipation and preparation of the celebration of Christmas coming in like three days now. So when we're reading the Christmas story, it's not ordinary anymore. It's extraordinary. It's wondrous. Do yourself a favor. Just this Christmas, Go pull out your favorite little Christmas storybook that you read as a child or that you read to your kids every Christmas and before you read it to them, before you gather them if you have children, go, go lay in a bed somewhere. And if you don't have a children's book, go buy one at, at you know, some store, today or tomorrow, and, then, and sit in your bed and read it. Just the children's story. Just read it, but stare deeply into it and go, I am going to find the fullness of what it means for divinity to become humanity right here. And I'm going to be awe-inspired by what Christ has done for me. And then in that place, in that place, grab a hold of that and travel into that over the next few days and weeks and see what begins to birth in you. I'll tell you, love will start coming. That love you feel, the one we write off as nothing but a feeling, no, it's, it's real. It's part of the greater picture of love. And then when you feel it, here's what's gonna happen. I'm just telling you. Remember Elf? Remember him? I'm in love and I don't care who knows it. That's what happens when we fall in love. 
You will go into workplaces, you will go into social networks, you will go into neighborhoods, you might even go to the ends of the earth and you'll run around going, I'm in love and I don't care who knows it. And that's what sharing the gospel is all about. And the burden and responsibility of being an evangelist and going to some awkward person in your grocery store and going, can I give you this track? It's about Jesus, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Instead of that being your experience, you'll be in love. You'll be in love. And when you're in love, it doesn't matter if the other person doesn't love who you love, they're excited for you. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I don't like who you're in love with, but I love that you're in love. And that's where we go. So if the burdens of this life, the cares of the day, have dissipated you as they do and as they have me, may this week be beautiful for you. And may you find your first love again in Christ this week. And if you can't find it easily, then dig harder and deeper until you stare into the conception and the birth of Jesus and see what it means that he became nothing for your redemption. Welcome to Christmas. Let's pray. God, I know I don't fully grasp what it meant that you became nothing, emptied yourself of all for the sake of of redeeming my soul. I know I don't have any idea what it must have been like to be boundaryless, borderless, and then to crawl into a human body. But I know this, that what you've done for me is awe-inspiring. And I, I know that the cares of my world dissipate my focus and dissipate my love for you because I just get caught up. And, and I'm asking you, Spirit of God, would you inspire me this Christmas? Would you inspire us this Christmas? When we read the Christmas story in a little kid's book or in the scriptures, may we see past the ordinary, past even the wonder and the miracles of angels and shepherds, and, and, and stare into a creator and sustainer becoming human and then humbling himself unto death. Oh gosh, God, would you inspire us this Christmas? May we take all that we have gathered over this month, the hope, the peace, the joy, the love, and may we bring it all to bear on Tuesday and Wednesday to be profoundly changed by what you've done for us this Christmas. We love you, Jesus. Amen.